Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we are back with another Keywords episode with the one and only Dr. Jillian Isaac. Today, we are going to do uh, two topics, as we usually do. This time, highly tested topics that are not on everyone's, uh, the tip of everyone's tongue, but, but you can get so many points just by knowing a few things here. So I think it's great that this is the topics we're going to cover. We're going to talk first about fire and laser safety and then about electrical safety. So Jillian, thanks so much and welcome back to the show. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so we're going to start off, like you said, with OR safety. We're going to do fire and lasers. I want everyone to know that we're doing this via Zoom. So we're being safe in this time of COVID. That's right. Um, this is our first, so- I should say, the first, <laughs> first. ever yeah. ACRAC yeah. Zoom podcast. I've done there lots via Skype and oh. through some other uh, distance recording mechanisms, but this is the first time. Zoom. And we're doing it through Zoom. So if it doesn't work, blame Zoom, not us. <laughs> yeah. So if you look at the ABA outline for both the basic and advanced exam, this is actually one of the rare times where it's on both. There is not a lot of overlap between the basic and the advanced um, outlines. And I think it's because for the advanced exam, they want you to know the basic also. But this is actually listed in both outlines. So for the basic exam for fire and lasers, they want you to know source of ignition And then um, safety regulations, National Fire Protection Association standards, risk factors for intraoperative fire. And then for the advanced exam, they want you to know that plus causes of intraoperative fires, treatment of intraoperative fires, and then lasers and laser safety. I put lasers in here because they're one of the biggest reasons where you see airway fires. And it just kind of seemed to fit naturally in here because they're not going to be that many questions. So I kind of tacked it on at the end. Sounds good. Yeah. If you want to know what they're testing, the biggest one is actually airway fire, including prevention and management. So that was tested in 2008, 11, 15, 18, and 19. Laser airway fire management, that was in 2014 and 16. Laser resistant, laser safe endotracheal tubes, 2010, 13, 16, and 17. And then lasers and laser safety, that was 2011, 2019. So a lot of it is really around airway fire. a lot of prevention, and then, God forbid, you have it, what do you do? So, Sounds good. All right. So the first key point is that there is the fire triangle. Do you remember what those points are on the fire triangle, Jed? Uh, yeah, so three things that you have to have for a fire. So you need a fuel of some right. kind, an oxidizer, and an yep. ignition source. Yeah. So the OR is like a perfect storm for that because we have lots of fuel potential. So all our drapes, prepping agents, gas, pretty much anything in the operating room could be considered fuel. And then we have oxidizer. We always use oxygen, nitrous, I mean, yeah, almost always, right? And then ignition sources. So the bovies and lasers are the two bigger sources of ignition. So we have that triad all the time um, in the operating room. So the most important thing in it is actually 
prevention. So there are strategies to prevent fires. And I don't know about other institutions, but we started the fire in, in part of the the huddle or debrief. What do we do in the beginning? Like the timeout? We do yeah. that like fire we assign a fire number, like a safety. I don't know. We just started that in the past couple of years. We talk about where the fire extinguisher fire is. That's relatively new. Yeah. That's a relatively new thing that we do at Hopkins. We didn't do that several years ago. So um, so in prevention, what are some things we can do to prevent this, Jed? So well, the biggest thing that I think about when we have a a case, a surgery, where we're worried about it, so for example, airway lasering, we would want to reduce our oxygen as low as we can get, ideally to room air, because that's going to remove the oxidizer. Um, and then, obviously, we don't want to provide any extra fuel. So, you know, we don't want the, the drapes to be wet, because that's only going to make them right. more flammable. Um, we want things to be... Uh, at well, least, wet we with, like, prepping agents. Wet with prepping like water, agents, sorry, yeah. yeah. Right, alcohol-based prep, um, yeah. Right, alcohol, not a good thing. But, um, but at the same time, water, obviously, is a, is a good thing to try to right. prevent things from catching yeah. fire. And so we would right. want um, gauze and things like that to be moist when possible. Yeah, exactly. So you want to use room air, room air minimize oxygen. Nitrous is flammable. So you want to minimize your nitrous use. Let any prepping agent dry fully. And then surgeons should be using like moist gauze um, and try to have things in water as much as possible. So here are the uh, type of questions you're going to see about prevention. So the risk for airway fire during laser resection of a tracheal tumor is decreased by use of A, a CO2 laser rather than a YAG laser, B, an inspired helium concentration greater than 60%, C, an inspired nitrous oxide oxide concentration greater than 60%, D, a polyvinyl chloride endotracheal tube, E, halothane in the inspired mixture. Yeah, and so if you just go through these, it, right. even if you don't know uh, what's the difference between a CO two and a YAG laser, you know, right. a laser is going to be an ignition source. A, right, exactly. A laser um, has an ignition, right? Let's skip B for a second. Let's go to okay. C. Inspired nitrous oxide greater than sixty percent, like you just said. Nitrous oxide right. is right. flammable, so that's not good. Endotracheal tubes can absolutely burn. Yes. Um, and then halothane, you know, again, a small fraction of halothane is not going to change the fact that you're mixing it in. Now, they don't say here, and so maybe they should have that it would be in a high oxygen mixture. Right, right. But that doesn't sound good. So that leaves us with B. And indeed, right. the higher the non-flammable gas, of which helium right. is one, in this case, greater than 60%, it means you're going to have less oxygen, and that's what they're getting at. Right. And I think there was a kind of a smart answer because they put helium and that will throw some people off is like why helium I don't really ever use heliox but I don't think it's something we commonly do but it's a good question because it just tests your knowledge of decreasing the oxygen concentration and what are flammable and non-flammable agents that we use right and I would just say that a common misconception or I shouldn't say misconception but something people don't always remember is that when you if let's say you're running 60 70 percent oxygen and now they're getting ready to laser and you're going to turn down the oxygen if yes. you turn down the oxygen and now your fraction of inspired oxygen says 25, 23, whatever percent, and you think I'm good to go, you have to look at your fraction and, of exhaled right. oxygen right. too because yeah. if you have low flows, if you're only running a liter and a half or two liters per minute of flow, you could have 25% inhaled oxygen and 75, 80% exhaled oxygen, and it could take many minutes for that to go down. And of right. course, if they're breathing out high concentrations of oxygen, that's going to still be very flammable. So you you want to turn your flows way up and make sure that both your inspired and exhaled oxygen is low. 
Right. Yeah. And then the, the endotracheal tubes are actually our special laser safe endotracheal tubes. So the polyvinyl chloride ones are actually the most flammable of the tubes that are available. So, okay. Another question about minimizing or preventing fire. So reasons for selecting a cuffed endotracheal tube over an uncuffed endotracheal tube include all of the following except. So all these are true except. So few intubations and endotracheal tubes are needed. Less chance for airway fires. Uh, C, spontaneous breathing is easier. D, aspiration of gastric contents is less likely. And this is one of those tricky questions that says all of the following uh, except. Right. So they're saying which of these is not a reason to choose a cuff, um, to choose a cuffed endotracheal tube. So, uh, Answer choice A is a little confusing. Few intubations and endotracheal tubes are needed. Yeah, well, I remember back to my I remember back to my P's experience where I use uncuffed tubes the most, and sometimes you'd put in one and it wasn't the right size, you had to change it out, so it wasn't uncommon to have to do one or two. That was my that was my thought about that one. So I do think when you're using uncuffed, you do end up changing them a lot more frequently than you would with a cuff tube. Yep, that makes sense. So that means that doesn't that choice doesn't work. Less right. chance for airway fires. Again, you still have um, uh, that makes sense because you have uh, less gas leak from around right. the um, the tube, and so that that is better if you have to choose. Right. Um, right. Spontaneous breathing is easier. Um, not necessarily right. That's that doesn't really make sense. Um, and uh, aspiration of gastric contents is less likely. Well, obviously, that's that's the opposite. Right. So exactly. we're left with C. Right. So using a cuff tube can actually decrease your chance for airway fire. So especially like in a peds tonsil room, it's just something to think about. Um, not that I do a lot of pediatrics, but okay. And another question about uh, reducing risk. So reduction of fire hazards during laser surgery of the airway is best accomplished by use of A, continuous mode laser emissions, B, a nitrous oxide, opioid, relaxant, anesthetic technique, C, a polyvinyl chloride endotracheal tube and cuff. D, topical lidocaine, E, saline-filled sponges over exposed tissues. Yeah, and so we kind of went over this one already. We didn't talk about continuous mode laser, but even if you don't know continuous versus intermittent or whatever, (laughs) continuous doesn't sound good. Nitrous, we talked about. Polyvinyl chloride, as you said, very flammable. Uh, Topical lidocaine, a little hard to to, uh, figure out how that would play a role one way or the other, but certainly we talked about saline-filled sponges being good to try to reduce the risk. Right, exactly. All right, and one last one. This is very similar to the question that we did. I just want to bring this point home is during surgery with a CO2 laser, so a carbon dioxide laser, which inhaled gas mixture is least likely to promote combustion of the endotracheal tube? So A, A, oxygen, 25%, helium, 75%. B, oxygen, 25%, nitrogen, 75%. C, oxygen, 25%, uh, nitrous oxide, 75%. D, oxygen, 50%, nitrogen, 50%. And E, oxygen, 50%, nitrous oxide, 50%. Yeah, so you can definitely get rid of everyone that has higher oxygen or higher nitrous, which is going to be C, D, and E. It leaves you A and B. And then you really just have to know which is more flammable, helium or nitrogen. Yeah, and, and we, as we talked we, about, helium is very inert, so it's, right. uh, yeah, A. Uh, nitrogen actually is uh, combustible, so helium is the best answer choice there. Okay, so moving on to actually what happens if you have a fire. So if you look at closed claims data, and this was published in anesthesiology a few years back, most fires that happen are actually like on the head, neck, upper chest, 
and uh, oxygen was used like nasal cannula. So you can imagine that most of the fires happen up there because that's where the oxygen is. And in like, um, it's a lot in like outpatient max sedation cases, like in eye places where you're doing nasal cannula and you have the blue drape up and you kind of get this pool of oxygen under the drape. And then they use a bovie and it uh, combusts and you get burns on the chest and the head. So that's where most of them actually do happen. Um, it's most commonly the ignition is actually electrocautery. So for a non-airway fire, the algorithm, as far as I could see, is the stop flow of all airway gases, remove drapes and all burning and flammable, flammable material, extinguish the burning materials by pouring saline or whatever fluid you got around. If the fire is not extinguished on the first attempt, you want to use a CO2 fire extinguisher. So for the airway fire, that's almost always with um, a laser. You're doing like a getting rid of tumors or polyps in the airway and they're using a laser to do it. Now there's always that question as to what do you do first, right? Do you stop the flow of oxygen and then pull the tube or pull the tube and stop the flow of oxygen? I think on an oral board exam, you're going to be doing them at the same time. I think for the written board, the answer choice that they want you to pick is actually pull the tube first. Yep. That's kind of what I've seen. So, And I think um, that's, that's because it seems like such a radical move to just yank this tube out. But right. that is, you know, that that's, I think, why they test that. They want you to, to believe that. Right. So you want to remove the tube, stop flow of gases, remove any sponges and any flammable material. This algorithm I set, saw actually set pour saline into the airway and then re-intubate. Um, I know you're not supposed to do like a BAL immediately, but I'm not quite sure if you're supposed to pour saline. But I guess if there's damage, it helps. Um I don't think the questions will be ambiguous. You know, on a multiple choice exam, they have to give you a very clear answer. So I don't think it will be that ambiguous. So here are a couple of questions that I found uh, regarding treatment of uh, fires in the operating room. So during laser microsurgery of the larynx using an endotracheal tube, a fire occurs in the airway. Which of the following is the most appropriate initial management? A, increase FiO2. B, instill saline into the endotracheal tube. C, perform cricothyroidotomy. D, remove the endotracheal tube. E, ventilate with air. Yeah, and we covered this. So definitely you want to take that tube out. Right. And this is exactly like a very similar question. I just want to make sure everyone gets the point here is that so during laser excision of vocal cord polyps in a five-year-old boy, dark smoke suddenly appears in the surgical field. The trachea is intubated and anesthesia is being maintained with halothane, nitrous oxide, and oxygen. The most appropriate initial step is to A, change from oxygen and nitrous oxide to air. B, fill the oropharynx with water. C, instill water into the endotracheal tube. D, remove the endotracheal tube. E, ventilate with carbon dioxide. Right. So get that thing out. Right. It's, and, and honestly, here, I don't think, uh, Jillian, and I could be wrong, but I don't think they're going to give you two answer choices, one of which is remove the endotracheal tube and the other is others. stop the flow of oxygen. Right. Um, I don't think so either. They can't give something that that's ambiguous because if you asked 100 anesthesiologists, I think you'd probably get 50 saying pull the tube first and the other 50 saying turn off all the fresh gas flow first. So, but I think the idea is you're going to do it at the same time, but on a multiple choice test, they're probably going to give you one or the other, but not both. And I think because they want you to have that knee jerk response, like pulling the tube, that's, that's probably going to be the answer choice that they're going for most of the time. Yep. Um, so here's another example where you see a fire, but this is something that happened maybe not in the hospital, um, but two hours after sustaining extensive burns of the head, neck, and chest, uh, patient has strider and difficulty breathing. The most appropriate management is A, administration of aerosized epinephrine, B, administration of helium and oxygen, C, endotracheal intubation, D, intravenous injection of dexamethasone, and E, tracheostomy. 
Yeah. So I think what they're getting at here is that you don't want to delay endotracheal intubation in these right. patients because if you're, if there are, if once they're having difficulty breathing, it's only going to get worse, or at least there's a high chance it's going to get worse and that you may not even be able to intubate. So you want to intubate these patients. Yeah, that's my take too. And from what I've read, and I've never seen an airway fire and hope I never do, but once you pull the tube and put saline in, you're supposed to reintubate right away because you're going to get edema very, very, very quickly and you don't want to lose the airway. So it should be in your algorithm. I pull the tube and still saline and reintubate like as quickly as you can. All right, so key point three is that lasers are major cause of airway fires, and so you want to use an appropriate laser-safe endotracheal tube. The surgeons I work with always hand it for me, so I've never actually learned which laser and which tube is correct. They usually give it to you. I haven't seen questions that specific. Um, laser protection is required and is different for each type of laser. Uh, I just want to say that like CO2 lasers can cause serious corneal injury, and I remember that because CO, CO for cornea, CO2. Um, and YAG lasers can actually burn the retina, they penetrate further. Um, so these are the type of questions you're going to see about lasers. It might not be specific to just fire, but they do ask laser safety questions too. So eye protection for OR staff is needed when laser surgery is performed. Clear wraparound goggles or glasses are adequate with what kind of laser? A, argon laser, B, ND YAG laser, C, CO2 laser, D, none of the above. So this, you know, and th you're, these do come up, these questions, it drives me crazy because it's just pure memorization. But the clear, the clear goggles, I'm pretty sure are for CO2 lasers. Yeah, I think CCC, so corneal abrasion, CO2 and clear, I kind of put C all together. So that's the way I remember that. Yeah, that's a great way to remember. Yeah. Of the following medical lasers, which laser light penetrates tissue the most? A, argon. Laser B, helium neon laser, C, ND YAG laser, D, CO2 laser. And I don't know the answer to this, though I will say that I know it's not CO2 because we talked about that being superficial in the cornea. Right. Um, the, uh, the YAG laser does go deeper. So if I had to guess, I'd guess that. I don't know about argon and helium. Yeah, so ND YAG, it is the most powerful medical laser and it can penetrate tissues from two to six millimeter. I don't know. I just think it sounds really gnarly. So ND YAG. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so it's like the most gnarly of them. But, um, so to just summarize, I think the questions that you're going to see on this topic, they're going to be about preventing fire. So again, the fire triangle, decreasing use of oxygen and nitrous, like really trying to minimize flammable, um, I mean, combustible gases in your anesthetic, and then um, letting preps drape and making sure that uh, any gauze you're going to use are soaked up beforehand in saline. Uh, and then they're going to ask about um, treatment of airway fires and fires, and then maybe some laser safety. Great. That's a super high yield topic. Thank you. Uh, let's move on to electrical OR safety. This comes yeah. up again all the time on tests. It does. And uh, I actually really like this topic and a lot of people don't. And what I will say is you don't need to be an electrician. You don't really need to understand a lot of the electric electrical stuff behind this to get the answers correct. Now, if you really want to understand it, great. Um, but to get the answers correct, there are just a few points you really need to know and you'll get all these test questions correctly. Um, so again, going back to the the outline content. So for the basic, this is really basic. Advanced is much more like fire. They don't have a lot of electrical, but the electrical stuff is really going to be on the basic exam. So they want you to know about um, prevention of electrical issues. So grounding, isolation transformers, macro and micro current hazards, and um, 
I guess that's it. Static. I, I, I've never seen a question about static, but it's on the, it's on the uh, outline from the ABA. So what's on the test? They actually really test a lot about the line isolation monitor. That's probably the most common test question that you see. It was tested in 2016 and 2018 and back in 2009. So it's interesting. They still have micro and macro shock on the outline, but from what I can tell, it hasn't been tested in a long time. Although I, I swear I've heard people talk about it and like say that they've gotten questions, but who knows? Yeah, I have seen that on my Mocha. Um, my Mocha questions yeah, have had that. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I'm start. We're starting to see questions about like Bovi, like it burns from the Bovi units because that can be an electrical hazard there also. So, um, so just. Like to say, start off that operating rooms are full of electrical equipment and fluids, increasing risk for electrical shock. Uh, so I'm going to, I don't want to get too much into electrical stuff, but I have to kind of lay a little bit of foundation here. So electricity has to travel through a closed circuit. If you remember from like your college physics, right, you have a switch, you have the, the light bulb and the wire to the battery, and then the battery has the, the wire back to the light bulb, right? And you flip the switch. Um, but if the switch is off, it won't go. So it has to be a continuous circuit, right? So if you think about your house, like where you're living, and this is very simplified, but electricity comes from the power company through the wires to your circuit breaker, and then it goes to your house and then it actually returns through the ground. So that ground is like a wire. Think of it as a wire because unless you have a return source to the power company, nothing's going to drive the circuit, the electrical circuit. Um, so if you're standing on the ground and then you touch something with electrical current, you can become part of the circuit and get shocked. Now that's a little bit confusing because there's two types of grounding. There's the grounding of your house, which is what I just said, but anytime you actually plug in something, that also is grounded. So we use the term grounded in two different ways in terms of the electrical circuit going through your house, but also in terms of appliances that get plugged in. So they're both called being grounded. What you need to know in the operating room is that electricity does not return via the ground. It's an isolated circuit, which is said to be safer because you'd have to touch, instead of standing on the ground, like kind of being on quote unquote one wire, you'd actually have to touch two different wires. So think of that circuit of the, the, battery and the wires and the light bulb and this completely isolated circuit, that's what it is in the operating room. And that's really all you need to know. <laughs> you don't need to go any more into detail for that. And what I want to say is that, um, so if you did plug in a faulty piece of equipment, the isolated circuit reverts to a normal, like a household grounded circuit. So it's not unsafe because we live in our houses and we're very safe, right? Um, so you go from this isolated line, this isolated line to a grounded circuit. So the line isolation monitor, and this is the key piece to know, is that it is only a monitor. It's like any other monitor. Like the pulse ox will tell you when the oxygen level is low, but it won't tell you why. The line isolation monitor will go off when the integrity of the isolated electrical system has been grounded. And it has, and it's not unsafe. It just means that you've gone from this isolated system to a grounded system, just like you would have in your house. Um, so the, the monitor goes off if there is a higher than normal ground current in the OR. And if you ever hear it, it's not subtle. It's happened to me one time, and I felt so smart because I knew exactly what it was and what to do. And it was, what is that noise? And that's, nice. I couldn't find a question, but that's a very common test question is if you plug in, say, a bear hugger and the alarm goes off, what should you do? And the answer for that is always unplug the most recent thing you plugged in and keep working right. backwards to figure exactly. out what it was. Yeah, 
You're good. Okay, so this is the type of questions that you're going to see. So which of the following is indicated by an alarm condition in the line isolation monitor? A, an electrical shock to the patient. B, a power surge in the main hospital power supply. C, disconnection of the patient from an electrocautery grounding pad. D, overload of the operating room circuits. E, the presence of a current leak between an operating room electrical device and ground. Yeah, and so it's going to be E, and that's what you were saying is that the yep. key there is the point of the operating room isolated circuit is that it doesn't have a connection to the ground. So the line isolation monitor will tell you when it now does, which is a problem. Right. And it could be an overload of the operating room circuits, but again, that's like the differential diagnosis and not what the alarm is. So the alarm is just saying that there is a current leak and you now have a grounded system. It could be because of the overload, but it could be because of something else. And it's usually a faulty piece of equipment. So again, line isolation monitor is just a monitor. It monitors that isolation circuit to make sure it hasn't become a grounded one. So this is another question just like that. The line isolation monitor, A, prevents microshock, B, prevents macroshock, C, provides electrical isolation in the OR, D, sounds an alarm when grounding occurs in the OR, E, provides a safe electrical ground. And as you said, it's just a monitor, so all it does is sound an alarm when grounding occurs. That's Exactly, right. So which of the following malfunctions causes the line isolation monitor to alarm? A, discharge of static electricity, B, flow of current uh, to the ground in the isolated circuit, C, interruption of current to electrical outlets caused by a circuit breaker, D, surge of current in the main power supply, E, total electrical current exceeding certain capacity. And again, it's all about that gr- reaching ground, so B, the flow exactly. of current to the ground right. is what right. you want. So if you could just do that line isolation monitor, monitors the amount of grounded electrical current there is, that's it. You'll get that question right every time. Um, So in the operating room, A, conductive floors are necessary for electrical safety. B, the ECG monitor may be used as a grounding source. C, an improperly grounded electrocautery causes ventricular fibrillation. D, an isolation transformer offers no protection against microelectrocution. E, a line isolation monitor will interrupt power automatically if excessive leakage to the ground is detected. Yeah, so this, we can, I think it's a trickier question. We can say, well, we know E is not correct because we talked about that. It doesn't do anything other than alarm, so we can take that out. Right. We can probably get rid of A. Conductive floor sounds like a terrible idea. Right. So we're left with B, C, and D. Yeah. ECG monitor may be used as a grounding source. Again, you wouldn't want to, and why would you design it that way? I think that's pretty easy to get rid of. An improperly grounded electrocautery causes B fibs. That's That's a pretty general statement. If it said, you know, there is a risk of or something, then I actually don't know if that's true or not. But I, but knowing that this is such a general, like it will cause V-fib makes me lean away from that. And right. then an isolation transformer offers no protection against microelectrocution. Right. Don't know if that's right or not, but that's kind of what I'm left with. Yeah, right. And an isolation transformer in and of itself doesn't, it's not really going to protect you from shock. It just makes it much harder because you have to have two hits instead of one. Um, and if you get a grounded circuit, then it's, but it's not going to prevent it. It just makes it a little bit safer. Yeah. 
All right, so moving on to key point two, and this is about macro shock and micro shock. So it's important to know that micro and macro shock are not terms used in any international standard. It's kind of something we talk about in the operating room, but the micro shock is an otherwise imperceptible electrical current. So we're talking about 10 to 100 micro amperes applied directly to the heart muscle to cause disruption of normal cardiac function. And it can only happen with patients who have protruding intercardiac electrical conductors. So the biggest one would be like a central line, you know, you're going right into the heart and you've got this um, conduit with fluid in it. Uh, another example would be uh, external pacemaker electrodes. Um, so that's the only way you can get a micro shock and you have to have a direct line to the heart. And a macro shock is when a much larger current is passed through the body and not directly to the heart muscle. So that's the big difference between micro and macro shock. Um, so these are the type of questions that they ask about this. The minimum macro shock required to elicit ventricular fibrillation is A, 1 milliamp, B, 10 milliamp, C, 100 milliamps, and D, five, oh, D 500 milliamps, and E, 5,000 milliamps. And this is one of those things you either know or you, you don't. Know. Exactly. And I will fully admit I don't know. All right. So it's 100. It's uh, between 50 and 100. If you want some reference point, one milliamp is the threshold of perception and 10 to 20 is what's called the let go current. Um, if you're above 20, all your muscles contract down and you can't let go. So those are pretty big shocks. So it's actually a lot of amperage. And if you look at like electrical stuff, like a toaster only draws like 10 to 15 amperes. Like most things in the house don't draw amperes that will shock you to the point where it would cause ventricular fibrillation. It has to be like a power line, something pretty massive to do it. Yeah. Uh, and I would just remind people that we're talking about amps, not joules. So don't get confused yes. with the joules that you use on the defibrillator. Yeah. You can't see me, but I just did the little yeah. defibrillator. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the fundamental difference between micro shock and macro shock is related to a location of shock B, duration, C, voltage, D, capacitance, and E, lethality. Yeah, so a little bit tricky, but I think, as you said, it's really about location. Is it directly on the heart right. or is it uh, going through the body? And I think that's right. going to be the answer. The rest of those, voltage may be tricky. I, I would see a lot of people incorrectly choosing yes. that. So a lot of people do incorrectly pick voltage. And um, you have to think, though, that volt is actually the difference. So if you think of like a battery, it's the difference between one end and the other. It's not a current. So a volt isn't going to hurt you. It actually has to be like an amp amperage or a current. So if that said like a current, it would be different. That would be a much harder one. But volt in and of itself is just the potential difference between two ends. Does that yeah. make sense? Yep. Yeah. Um, so I do think that one's a tricky one because people do go for voltage, but that just becomes a definition, like electrical definition. All right, so another type of question you might see is leakage current and microshock hazards are eliminated by A, an isolation transformer, B, conductive flooring, C, a three-wire grounding system, D, a line isolation monitor, E, none of the above. So eliminated is a pretty big word. Yeah. Um, and so word. I think it's probably, and anytime they put that none of the above in there, you got to think, uh, you know, this is, I got to think hard about this one. And I think that as we've talked about, uh, leakage current can happen. A line isolation monitor isn't going to stop that. It will tell right. you if it happens. It'll so, tell you. Uh, you right. know, I think that the best bet here is right. none of the above. Yeah, it's none of those. Nothing is ever going to be 100%, right? Um, and like I said, the line isolation monitor is just a monitor. The isolation transformer is just an extra layer of safety. It's kind of like in the airplane industry. They always have it like a built-in. It's like a backup 
safety net, right? So this is the that backup safety net for the electrical system in the OR. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but um, so the last point is I want to just bring up Bovi because that is the big point of electricity in the OR. Um, so the, the Bovi it starts at the there's the electrocautery surgery electrocautery surgical unit, and there's one line that goes to the actual Bovi itself, and it's a very very concentrated current at the tip of the Bovi, and that. Then there's the grounding pad, and then that goes back to the ESU. So the Bovi, um, after you Bovi, all that electrical current is dissipated through the grounding pad. So you go from this very high concentrated at one point, and then it gets um, spread out over the grounding pad and back to the ESU. So you can get burns if the pad isn't on all the way. Um, the current can concentrate to where it's stuck on and where it's not. And if the gel is dry, you can also get burns that way. Um, so these are the type of questions that we've been seeing about bovies. The reason a patient is not burned by the return of energy from the patient to the bovie unit is that A, the coagulation side of the circuit is positive relative to the ground side. B, resistance in the patient's body attenuates the energy. C, the the exit current density is much less. D, the overall energy delivered is too small to cause burns. Yeah, and as you just explained, it's going to be C, the exit current density is much right. less. That's the reason for having a large right. pad, at least large in size, compared to the tip of that bovie. Right, exactly. So you're spreading it out over a much larger surface area. So which of the following decreases the risk for burns during electrocauterization? A, conductive flooring. They love that answer choice. B, yeah. grounding of the patient to the operating table. C, increased resistance at the return electrode. D, isolation of the current output of the electrosurgical unit. E, placement of the return electrode at a distance from the surgical site. So uh, I think we can get rid of some. Conductive flooring obviously right. doesn't make sense. That seems sense. to never Ground, be the answer. Never, <laughs> the, answer. never the answer, right. Grounding the patient to the table right. is not no, what you would want to ground them to, yeah. obviously. Um, increased resistance at the return no. electrode no. doesn't make That'd sense be because if there, yeah. you'd build up heat if there was resistance right. there. exactly. Isolation of the current output of the electrosurgical unit. I'm not sure what that's getting at, but you certainly want it to come all the way around. You don't want it to be isolated to just the tip of exactly. that movie. Right. And so that only leaves us with E. Um, right. I actually don't know because I'm, I'm, my physics is very rusty why having it at a distance is important, but that's what we're left with. Yeah, I'm not sure, but that's the answer. Yeah. So another type of question is after removing the electrocautery pad from the thigh, a burn is noted at that site. Which of the following most likely contributed to this injury? A, a line isolation monitor fault. B, current leak from the EKG module. C, defective grounding of the electrocautery unit. D, dry gel on the electrocautery pad. E, excessive current setting for cutting mode. And as you said, that either if it's not on all the way or if the gel is dry, those are things that can cause that burn. So it's a dry gel. And then the last question is very similar to that, is a burn is found at the site of the electrocautery pad. Which of the following is most likely? A, the electrosurgical unit was in the bipolar mode. B, the electrocautery pad became partially detached. C, the electrosurgical unit ground wire was severed. D, the line isolation monitor alarmed. E, the the patient became grounded. Right. And so, again, having that electrocautery pad partially detached means you don't have that wider right. uh, distribution. Right. Yeah. And I love that they put the line isolation monitor as answer choices, because it's one of those things if you don't really understand it, it's very tempting to pick. So again, um, I think really the take home for here is that the line isolation monitor is only a monitor. It monitors for a ground current, which is what you don't want. If that happens, if it goes off, unplug the last thing that you plugged in. Um, it's only going to detect a current leak to the ground. That's it. 
Um, the difference between a micro and a macro shock is the location. A micro shock has to have a conduit directly to the heart. Um, and I think, I think you only need like 10 amps, micro amps to cause a, like a defib- like a ventricular fibrillation in a micro shock situation. Uh, and in a macro shock, you need 50 to hundred milli- milliamps. So it's the difference of a, what, a hundred fold, thousand fold really. Um, yeah. and then you can get burns with the bovie pad if it's not on correctly. Awesome. Well, Jillian, I think this is really high yield. Thank you. Um, no you know, we've kind of gotten away from doing the random recommendations because, uh, it felt a little too light in the time of COVID, um, for a lot of the yeah. COVID stuff. But I, I do think I, I'd love to ask you, what are you doing to get your mind off taking care of, you know, potentially COVID patients and working hard and, and all the stress around this time? Are you, is there anything you're reading or listening to or anything you'd Drink, recommend if drinking folks a want lot a break? Of yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no. um, I actually play the piano. So one of my big ways I like to run, but my other way that I like to de-stress is playing the piano. So I've, um, I actually initially learned classical over time. I did much more like I played for a lot of choirs and did choral arrangements and was more like, uh, played for soloists. And then I do a lot of like pop and contemporary, but lately I've been getting back into my like, classical roots. I was playing Ave Maria the other day and it was lovely. Nice. So. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I, uh, am reading this book that uh, was recommended on another podcast I listened to. It's called Wolf Hall. Mm. It's a non, uh, it's actually a historical novel. I told you about Wolf Hall. Did you tell me about it? Yeah. Oh, I also heard it on a podcast, but, um, there you go. um, So it's a, it's a historical novel, um, written by Hillary, um, Mantel, Mantel. Mm -hmm. um, about Thomas Mm -hmm. Cromwell, um, yeah, uh, so kind of the interactions. It's the first of a trilogy. Yep. Have you read the whole trilogy? I've read Wolf Hall and then Bring Up the Bodies. So I've okay. read the first two, but not the third one. Yeah, yeah. it's incredibly well written. It's really interesting yeah. history um, set in the uh, around 1529 when Thomas Cromwell kind of becomes um, uh, plays his his famous role of helping Henry VIII break away from the uh, the Catholic Church to establish the Church of England, so he yep. can divorce his one wife Catholic and marry another. Aragon and Mary Anne Boleyn before he cuts her head off. That's right. Um, so it's pretty interesting and well written. So that's been that's been yeah. nice. And then yeah. I'll just share that uh, one of our residents um, uh, shared a really wonderful story, and, and just to I think this reminds us that there are still you know really wonderful things happening. Um, despite a lot of sadness, and and that was a, she was taking care of a COVID intubated, very severely ill uh, COVID patient in the ICU, who was intubated for a couple of weeks and has a six year old um, child who they were helping uh, him kind of um, face or zoom with as much as possible, but it was very hard. Obviously, couldn't talk with intub- being intubated, and then uh, she was able to be there when he was extubated. And they and the family didn't know that he was extubated, and so she actually helped the patient make a surprise Zoom call to his wife and six year old, oh, and uh, they saw him and were able to talk to him for the first time yeah. in two weeks, and it was just this wonderful moment. Yeah. Everyone had tears in their eyes, um, and so there are there are recoveries happening. There are people getting yeah. well, and uh, a huge thank you to everyone out there who's helping to make that happen. Definitely, definitely. Thanks so much, Jillian. All right, no problem. Take care. All right. That was great. That was our 10th keyword episode, and hopefully it was useful. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com, where you can leave a comment, and others can learn from what you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can join the Facebook group for ACRAC. 
If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. We really appreciate it. Huge thank you to Kimia Cash Cooley, our intern, and, of course, to Dr. Brian Park and April Liu, who make some fantastic outlines for some of the episodes, and to Dr. Dennis Quo, who composed the original ACRAC music. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Jillian Isaac, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.